Hello, you're listening to Linguistically Aware, a conversation-based podcast about the ways we use, understand, and think about language. My name is Dusan Nikolic, a grad student of linguistics at the University of Calgary, and I'm sitting down with linguists, experts who study language, to talk about a number of roles language plays in our lives. This is CJSW 90.9 FM broadcasting on the traditional territories of all the people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 of Southern Alberta. In this episode, I talk to Joy Windsor, a postdoctoral associate at the University of Calgary. Joy has a PhD in linguistics, and his specialty is phonology, the scientific study that explains how humans arrange speech sounds into sentences. His research expertise also extends to indigenous languages, sentence structure, and most important for today's talk, constructed languages or conlangs. You've probably heard about Esperanto, Klingon, Dothraki, High Valyrian. Well, on this podcast, we talked about the ways languages are constructed, how conlangs relate to language science, and what he's learned about and from doing this work. Slahat ho washa, Landra, Kath, Yan, Uth, Lahandra, Enanshta, Lan, La, Shutharatishun, Lan, Jana, Jat, Uwe, Wut, Joch, Shut, Uwahwinanshta, Jetha, Ho. That was Joy playing the guitar, talking in a constructed language while redoing the introduction to the Star Trek Next Generation. If you're impressed by that, keep on listening. An abundance of excitement is about to come. Joy, thank you. Thank you very much for agreeing to do this. Welcome to the second episode of Linguistically Aware. Um, You are a conlanger and the president of the Language Creation Society. I would like to start with that. Who is a conlanger and uh, what is the Language Creation Society? Um, it's some of the most challenging questions to answer is exactly what is a conlanger, who is a conlanger, um, because I, I don't think there's one mold that really captures everyone. Um, so a, a conlang is just the, um, it, it's a language that was purposely created by one or more individuals for whatever that goal happens to be. And a conlanger is just someone who engages in the art and science of conlanging. Um, and why someone might do that is there's so many reasons. Um, a lot of people do it for um, film, television, books, uh, tabletop role-playing games, and it's it's to add verisimilitude to the world they're trying to create. Other people do it as a refuge to create their own personal language, um, to express what they they have trouble expressing through their, their mother tongue. Other people create languages as moduses of 
international communication, and there are so many other reasons people engage in this. So, you know, a con langer could be anyone from, you know, someone like URI who have done advanced degrees in linguistics and want to play with our, our linguistic theories a little bit and, and see what we can get to someone who has had absolutely no training in linguistics whatsoever, but they come up with these beautiful art languages that that allow them to construct poetry or or express themselves. And there's there's no perfect mold that captures everyone. Who is entitled to conlanging that's not primarily directed for or towards ling linguists, experts in language? Anyone can be a conlanger. Yeah, that's exactly it. I, I got an email from one person uh, yesterday saying, what prerequisites do I need to become a, a conlanger? I don't know. Do you like language? Do you want to play with language? Congratulations, you're a conlanger. Start start the trial and error process that we've all gone through. Like you don't you don't need a degree in linguistics or or a degree in language. You just need the interest and the passion to carry it through. Tell me more about the Language Creation Society. You are a president of the Language Creation Society, and uh, as I assume, you receive lots of emails from people asking you about joining. What are the benefits of joining the Language Creation Society? Uh, so the Language Creation Society has been around for a little bit more than a decade now. Uh, it was the brainchild of a person named Sai, um, who wanted to be able to host a language creation conference, recognizing there were people out there who engage in this, this hobby, this craft, and wanting to bring them together. And uh, it was an interesting loophole um, in California at the time. I, I can't remember which university they were attending, but... If they registered as a club, then they could get university funds to potentially host this conference. Um, and from there, the, the Language Creation Society really took off as just a vehicle to have a language creation conference every two years. Um, and we've, we've obviously grown a lot uh, over the last 13 or so years. Um, we've, we've helped... HBO find conlangers for Game of Thrones, so David J. Peterson probably being the most well-known conlanger um, and probably the only person who has ever made a living at conlanging in history. Um, but the, the society is several hundred members from around the world. It's run by a board of directors, and of course I, I sit on that board. I elected to that board and named the president a couple of years ago. And I do get um, emails almost daily on somebody looking for an expert opinion, somebody looking to hire a conlanger, or some people going, what is this thing? Or asking, Are, do we offer scholarships? Um, all kinds of stuff. The primary benefit to becoming a member is um, we do offer discounts for some of our things like the Language Creation Conference, um, which is still sort of the backbone of what the society is. But we also connect people who are looking to hire a conlanger with people looking to be hired as conlangers uh, through our jobs postings, um, which we do offer to members first before they go to the public at large. Um, there's also email lists, so you can connect with other conlangers, and our, our email lists are quite active, um, whether it's just being 
hey, I just published this article, you guys might find it fascinating, to how do serial verbs even work because I want to try and implement them into my constructed language. And uh, someone out there on our email list probably has a good idea of what serial verbs in Hmong is or something like that and can provide references or examples. And it, it, uh, it creates a great networking community so we can bounce ideas off of each other and uh, incredibly supportive. Uh, ideas don't get shot down. They might get questioned um, in an academic sense, but usually with the goal of, of building each other up, which is something I, I really appreciate about all of our members. How did you start creating languages? Uh, and has your linguistic background influenced that? Um, so when I was much, much younger and, and starting to play Dungeons and Dragons as a teenager, um, I decided, you know, my my wizards needed arcane words or my alien races or monstrous races needed to speak something. Um, and basically everything I made was some bastardized version of, of Gaelic or German or French. Um, and it was it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. And I'm glad none of that survives. And then uh, during my master's degree at UCalgary, a friend of mine approached me in the hallway and he said, you speak Klingon, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> but you're a Trekkie. Yeah, 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 huge Trekkie. Could you do a talk on the linguistics of Klingon at the Calgary Comic and Entertainment Expo? I was like, um, went on Amazon. The grammar and dictionary was 99 cents. I'm like, yeah, I got this. Uh, I did that once. I didn't expect it to be a big deal but people absolutely loved learning about the inner workings of Klingon. I loved researching it. And so I started doing more and more talks on Klingon. Uh, and then through the undergraduate linguistics club uh, verbatim, they asked me to do a workshop on how to invent a language. And, you know, academically, I, I understood how one would do that. I had, I had looked into a number of the more well-known conlangs and understood generally how they were created so I started offering a couple of workshops and eventually I said you know if I'm going to teach this maybe I maybe I should try doing it and I started working on a language for a Dungeons and Dragons monstrous race called the Zill um, and I took into considerations they don't have lips so no bilabial sounds and they have these large protruding tusks so I wanted something to play with that and I ended up creating what uh, what a lot of us call kitchen sink languages, where we go, ooh, this is cool, ooh, this is cool, ooh, this is cool, and just adding absolutely everything. So uh, since you're a phonetician, you'll appreciate that I had clicks and implosives and ejectives and contrasting oral vowels and nasal vowels and creaky-voiced vowels, and it was just terrible. Uh, I remember the, the copula, the verb to be in that language was <clears throat> and I, I had tried to contrast oral and nasal vowels but uh, personally I, I cannot produce an oral vowel after a click so my, I, I have never produced the copula as it is supposed to be produced in that language um, and it's, it's a great example of what not to do and I definitely learned what not to do from that uh, and tried again with, with several other languages, um, both personal and, and professionally. And yes, my linguistics training does play a huge role 
in the way I approach constructing a language. Um, my, my goal when I'm doing this is to make a, a language more naturalistic. So when I'm trying to figure out what the phonological system in the language should look like, I actually use Elon Drescher's contrastive hierarchy. So I work out all the phonological features of every phoneme in the language. And then I look at what are the natural phonotactics out of, out of what I've designed there and how would they interact? What phonological rules would change the pronunciation in certain combinations? Uh, I also use um, Martina Vilchko's universal spine hypothesis when I'm doing the syntax of my language um, that enables me to do some fun things, like maybe I don't want to use tense in a language, but uh, maybe I'll use a realis irrealis system and I can, I can use Martina Vilchko's universal spine to still make the language look natural but create fun new contrasts with the language. Um, so I'm, I'm a very theoretical conlanger. I really enjoy playing with the background grammar and having the sketch like, this is what would go into a paper to describe the grammar. And then I get to the stage where I have to invent some words and I kind of go, ah, can't I just stick with the grammar? Uh, <laughs> but it's all part of it. Um, but I know other people, they don't care about the theory. They just, they have this natural sense for how things flow, how things go together, what sounds good. And without any linguistic training, they're making these amazing languages. And I usually point to two conlangers in particular, uh, Tony Harris and Jim Hopkins, um, who created the Alursa language and the Itlani language. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing those correctly, uh, respectively. And they're just, they're phenomenal and these people aren't linguists. They're, they're not linguistically trained other than picking up books themselves. And um, they both fluently speak their languages and can have conversations with each other in each other's language. And it's, it's phenomenal what they've accomplished. What would you recommend to a beginner? My biggest recommendation is um, be prepared to fail whatever they set their own goals for. Uh, I really think they should be willing to scrap whatever they come up with the first time or the first few times because I think a lot of us are really disappointed by our, our first attempt at conlanging, but we learn a lot from the experience and, and figure out how to march ahead pretty quickly. The second thing I would recommend is to lay out your goals for yourself um, people talk all the time about a conlanging failing or a conlang failing. Um, so if if one wanted to take um, a conlang like Itlani um, and say, how many speakers of Itlani are there? Um, I think there are actually a few now. There's uh, a, a pretty good Facebook following for this language, but definitely not the million plus speakers of Esperanto and people might talk about a conlang failing because only a few people speak it. If the goal was never to have international communication or replace Mandarin or English or, or what have you, then that's not an accurate measure to evaluate a conlang by. Um, so you, you have to know what your own goals are and not let other people get you down. And the third thing is be willing to pick up a few grammars, be willing to go to Wikipedia, figure out 
what grammar is, what it looks like, what sort of questions should you be able to answer, um, and just just have fun with it. Why are some conlangs more successful than other? Successful again, having the meaning of of people speaking it in this instance. Perhaps one of the most successful by that measure conlangs. Um, and I'm, I'm not including Esperanto in this or, or Volapük in this one, um, but I'm going to suggest is, is Klingon. There are probably tens of thousands of people who have at least at one point tried to learn Klingon. Um, there are thousands of people using the Duolingo course to learn Klingon. Um, perhaps more people trying to learn Dothrak, or sorry, High Valyrian on Duolingo. Um, but we, we do actually have you know, probably one or two, maybe 200 um, advanced speakers, um, somewhere between 20 and 70 fluent speakers of Klingon. Uh, there's been at least one child who has learned Klingon as a first language. And most people immediately assume that all of these people are huge Trekkie nerds. They watch the films, they fall in love with the franchise, and you know, some people go to conventions, some people cosplay. These people choose to interact with the franchise by learning an alien language. And that's not always the case. There are some very, very good Klingon speakers who have never watched Star Trek. Um, I think the majority of them are Star Trek fans. Uh, that's certainly my vehicle into Klingon studies. But some people simply hear about the health benefits of learning a second language. Uh, it keeps the mind sharp. It, it might stave off things like dementia. Um, and they, they're up for a challenge. And on a whim, they decide to learn something that's more alien rather than more earthbound and practical, perhaps. And they, they start with Klingon and they really excel at it because it is a full language it does have a speech community and you can engage with other klingon speakers and i really think that's the key um, if i were to talk about um, my tehosian language for example one of the conlangs i've made um, there are literally zero speakers of tehosian uh, even in the fantasy world that that language was created for, it's already a dead language in, in that world too. And it only exists in, in manuscripts. Um, so there's, there's no community. Even if I did want to pick up my grammar and study it and become a speaker of, of Tehosi in the language I invented, I probably wouldn't succeed because I wouldn't have anyone to talk to. Klingon, Dothraki, High Valyrian, Natvi, um, Esperanto, these languages all have groups of people who can share the language and can communicate. And other than it being cool for a particular in-group of people, I think the language community existing and being able to use the language is the, is the real key to success by that measure. It's fascinating that there are entire worlds around languages. Yeah. How can a language be as successful as those languages if there is no specific show to be featured on or no community? Is that a possibility? Um, 
if there's no community, I would say the the possibility is is relatively low. Um, again, if if that's what your measure of success is, um, I, I'm trying not to get myself in trouble by by saying you know the the old form of conlanging was auxiliary uh, language creation. Yeah, what's the what's the difference between auxiliary languages and con languages or constructed languages? Um, I. I like to say that conlang or constructed languages, or some people use the term uh, glossopoetics, is sort of this this high level overarching term, and it's any language that's intentionally created by one or more people. Auxiliary languages or oxlanging is a branch of conlanging where the intended purpose is international communication. Artlanging is a branch of conlanging where the intended purpose is to create something um, artistically, whether that's for a race in a TV show or a novel to speak or or something personal. Heartlanging is creating a language specifically for yourself. It's it's your own world, your own refuge. Then we have things like engelanging, uh, where the purpose is some sort of experimentation or or some other. Uh, specific purpose um, this is used in in linguistic experimentation quite frequently um, and then there are other branches that other people would would make but i would suggest that art langing which is what i do and ox langing which is the the international communication same thing just different goals and they're all they're all forms of con langing why haven't those languages like Esperanto and Volapük. Why haven't they succeeded as international languages? Because the intent of the authors was for these languages to be spoken by everybody in the world and to connect people in that way. Yeah, I think um, Esperanto is perhaps the best example, and and on the measure of number of speakers, it's it's probably the most successful conlang of of all time. Um, L.L. Zeminoff created Esperanto because he wanted a perfectly regular and um, by hypothesis, easy to learn, easy to understand language that everyone could speak and you could have a global community speaking a single language. And uh, he, he obviously a, a very brilliant um, person with, with grammar. Um, I don't believe he had any linguistic training whatsoever. But he was he was reading a, a Russian grammar, if I remember correctly, and he, he happened to notice that there was a group of words that ended the same way and a different group of words that all end the same way. And, you know, what we would learn is, as declensions in linguistics or, or different uh, noun types or verb types. And he said, why do we have languages that differ from these obvious patterns? Why couldn't we make a language that just absolutely stuck to these patterns and uh, he did and he created Esperanto and I, I believe there's a, a story where he had to create it twice because the first version got uh, got destroyed on him but uh, he, he created this perfectly regular language so I want you to put yourself in in his shoes you've just created this absolute masterpiece of grammar it's perfectly regular all nouns end in the same vowel, all adjectives end in a different but unique vowel, all verbs follow a single pattern, and you go to your next door neighbor and you say, I've invented Esperanto. Do you want to learn it? 
It's going to be a language that everyone on the world can communicate in. It's perfectly regular and it's very easy to learn. And your neighbor goes, oh, that sounds really cool. How many people speak it? Well, I do. And after you learn it, you will too. And then we'll get some other people. Chances are that neighbor's going to go, yeah, learning a language is a pretty big investment. Like that's a, that's a lot of time and energy. Maybe come back when there's a few more people speaking it. Now, obviously, there are, there are people out there who go, this sounds awesome. I do want to learn it. And now the, the Esperanto um, language community is over a million strong. We have people learning Esperanto as their first language. Um, I know there are people at the University of Calgary who do speak Esperanto. I'm not one of them. Um, but it's, it, it was remarkably successful despite all of those challenges of, of convincing people to speak another language. And, you know, in just normal society, if you go up to any given person on the street, no matter how you sell it, can you go up to someone and say, hey, I want you to learn French. I want you to learn Spanish. Like, why English? Um, and I'd, I'd suggest that most auxiliary languages face very similar problems regardless of where they are. Why are these conlangs such a good exercise for the brain? We know um, from a, a mental health perspective, um, or I shouldn't say we know, we, we have strong evidence to suggest from a mental health perspective that working with language is good for the brain. Uh, language is described by some people as a global process, meaning it uses both hemispheres of the brain. And learning a second language can have mental cognitive benefits, um, we believe. 
we, we believe having more than one language can stave off dementia. It can keep the brain active into old age, things of, of that variety. And surely inventing your own language probably has similar effects. It, it engages the brain. But I think for a lot of us, when we're conlanging, we are actively rejecting the languages we speak to a certain degree. So when you're, you're sitting down, you could look and you could go, okay, my word for apple is going to be ibis, and my word for aardvark is going to be alon, and my word for banana is going to be sisi, and my word for dog is going to be ob. You know, and you put that all together and you make a sentence using these words you just created. And if you follow the rules of English syntax, of English ordering, all you've done is, uh, I'll quote David J. Peterson, created the most annoying way to speak English possible. When we're conlanging, we're thinking of what is the grammar? What's, what's new? What's interesting about the way I'm putting this language together? What's interesting about the morphology? What's interesting about the sound sequences? Um, do we have things like um, one moose, two moose, three moose, but one dog, two dogs, three dogs? Or do we have a, a pockle number system or something we can do something else interesting with, um, you know, numbers of three or numbers of five or things like that? We're rejecting things like the word for ocean is just a word on its own, ocean, whereas in Old English it might have been a, a whale road, uh, a whale road. And, you know, we're coming up with these interesting compounds and we're rejecting some of the assumptions we've made with our own language. Um, this gets a little sapir-whorf for the, uh, the linguistically trained people, but... Uh, speaking another language can influence your perception, um, the way you treat things. So I think Klingon is a great example of this. In, in English, you can love something or you can not love something. But in Klingon, to love something is to unhate it. And it's that opposite way of thinking and a lot of the you know more positive more friendly emotions that we would express in a natural language with their own word Klingon uses this negation affix plus the the more pejorative form of the verb so you you unhate something to love it um, and it's it's that wrapping your mind around a, a different philosophy a different culture that that really opens your mind to different possibilities. So I think that's that's the direct answer to why is it a good thought experiment because you're you're pushing yourself to not be constrained by your own language and your own culture. How do these languages shape the community as well, the society around them? So of course these are all fictional or invented societies, but still it is something to think about when creating a language, yeah? Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I, again, I think David Peterson is, uh, is a master of this sort of thing. So he talks a lot about when he was inventing Dothraki. Um, you know, these are, these are nomadic people, they're horse lords, their, their life tends to revolve around um, riding or, or horses in some variety. Um, 
I wish I had my my fact page of of Dothraki sayings up because I Hashur um, Dothraichek. I think I mispronounced that, but Hashur Dothraichek is uh, is how are you? But it literally means how do you ride? You know, are are you sitting well in the saddle? Kind of thing. Uh, if if the Dothraki used a saddle. Um, so a, a lot of the the cultural and the the idiomatic expressions in in Dothraki have to do with uh, riding in some variety. Um, I was I shouldn't claim I was working on a translation in Dothraki. I was I was asking David to do a, a translation into Dothraki, and um, we had a suggestion for it. So there's uh, a very popular feminist. Um, saying nevertheless she persisted and it's you know it's a wonderful saying and we wanted to render that into dothraki um for title page in in my girlfriend's dissertation actually and rather than persisting in some variety which i I don't believe there is a word to persist in the dothraki language yet uh, we suggested maybe the translation would be nevertheless she continues to ride mazin dothrae uh, which I probably also mispronounced, but it was nevertheless third-person singular because there's no masculine or feminine in the Dothraki language uh, for grammatical gender. So nevertheless, third-person singular rides. And it was it was just such a beautiful translation and really revolved around the Dothraki horse-riding culture. Yeah, and the, if I'm correct, um, staying on a horse is very important. Yeah, um, I, I I don't know any idioms directly surrounding that, but I'm sure they're there. That and that's exactly the point. You watched The Office, I guess, the American TV show, when Dwight is teaching Erin to speak the Thraki, and she um, says to him at one point, "Dwight, I didn't know that you were teaching me a fake language," and he says, "People laugh the Klingon at first, but now you can major in it." And I have two questions. Is constructed language a fake language first? And uh, can you major in constructed language? Um, is it a fake language? I guess that's a matter of definition. Um, is, is art fake color? Like, is a painting fake color? color like it's it's somebody's view of the world or of a situation or of a feeling that they they crystallize they put into form through whatever process they happen to use and i i don't think we would consider a painting fake it it may be not a perfect representation of a moment in time but it's it's not fake it's art and I think a, a constructed language is very much the same. It's it's something drawn from someone's imagination, from various forms of inspiration. But once it's created, or even while it's in the process of being created, it's it's very real and it's it's art. Um, by comparison, I, I very frequently get asked, why would you invent a language? Like, why didn't you just, you being the, the general sense, why didn't uh, didn't George R. R. Martin or David Peterson or the showrunners teach, you know, Jason Momoa and Amelia Clark to speak Blackfoot or Navajo or something like that? Um, and it's like, would you ever say to to 
the Beatles, oh, you've you've written enough, we have enough music now, time to stop. You know, ACDC, thanks, but we've got enough music now. No, like, we're going to continue making art because that's something that defines us as, as humans. We, we create. And we don't want to misappropriate different cultures. Um, Mark Okrand, when he was flushing out creating the, the Klingon language, he, he very easily could have used a Native American indigenous language. His doctoral research in linguistics was on indigenous languages in California. And he said, no, like Klingons are at that time, like they're the bad guys. Why would I try to associate an indigenous language with the bad guys and a, a culture that doesn't fit the language? And that's that's exactly what we don't want to do. We don't want to repurpose, misappropriate someone's language for some other culture in a fantasy series. Um, so depending on your definition, Klingon, Dothraki, whatever it happens to be, um, is a, a fake language in, in the sense that it's not a natural occurring historically evolved from real speaking people's language uh, but it's absolutely a real piece of art right and can you ma major in it not that i'm aware of uh that would be fantastic if you could at some point i know a lot of universities out there are starting to teach constructed languages um usually in a linguistics department so it's it's a really cool way to engage uh, undergraduate students with what linguistics is because if they have to think about what the phonetic inventory of something is they they have to be open to the possibility of sounds that don't exist in their native languages uh, they have to be able to read the ipa chart they have to know what sounds could feasibly go together or what rules they're breaking by putting sounds together that would not normally appear that way they have to be able to know, you know, if you have object, subject, verb, syntax, um, the, the mailman, the dog bit, rather than the dog bit, the mailman, you have to carry that order throughout, uh, throughout your grammar and, and be consistent with whatever the natural way of speaking in your language is, um, barring whatever exceptions you also create. Um, so you, a lot of universities are allowing linguistics and language degrees to be supplemented by a conlanging course um, there is a klingon language institute where you can absolutely take courses in spoken and, and written klingon you can you can become a fluent second language speaker um, but i'm i'm not aware of any program that would allow you to to major in klingon or major in constructed languages yet You've mentioned that there are certain rules that are applied in natural languages. Do you have to apply those rules in conlangs? Let's describe it a little bit for our listeners. Um, the short answer to your question is you don't have to do anything in conlanging. Language is, is really cool because just about anything that we can say, this is what natural language does there's a language out there that breaks the rules. So we like to say there's, you know, almost every language on the planet has the sound T. Hawaiian doesn't have a T sound. It doesn't have a T. 
uh, there's what we call an implicational universal. If a language makes a contrast in voicing, chances are they will have the contrast between S and Z. Um, Irish makes a contrast in voicing and it doesn't have a Z. Um, chances are like if, if you're going to head the syllable um, whatever your head or your nucleus of a syllable is, is going to be a very sonorant sound. So there's a very loud, very um, rhythmic sound, like a vowel. And if you go away from vowel, vowels, we can have things like er or ol in English, head syllables, um, syllabic consonants. But then you get a language like Blackfoot where you can have s be the nucleus of a syllable. So languages break the mold all the time. When we talk about break, breaking these linguistic tendencies for a language like Klingon, which is designed to be as non-human as possible, we we take the rarest, or Mark Okrand took some of the rarest things and combined them in relatively novel ways. So you were just explaining what subject object was by by discussing you know what what nominative or accusative is. We like to categorize our languages in terms of the order of a subject, the thing doing the action, a verb, the action itself, and an object, the thing having the action done to it. So English is a subject-verb-object language. The dog bit the mailman. It turns out that English is like, uh, if I remember correctly, about 40% of the languages out there that has that pattern. Um, Subject, object, verb, the dog, the mailman, bit, uh, if I remember correctly, again, uh, is like Japanese, and that's a slightly higher percentage, around 43% of the world's languages. Uh, Gaelic languages, bit, the mail, or bit, the dog, the mailman, verb, subject, object, that's about 9% of the world's languages follow that pattern, and then obviously you go down from there. The rarest order, and we don't know if it's actually attested in any world's language, uh, simply because the languages that show us object, verb, subject also allow other orders, so we're not entirely sure. Less than 1% of the world's languages, less than 1% of the 7,000 or so languages spoken in the world, allow the order object, verb, subject. Klingon is object, verb, subject. Um, the sound uh, is found in, I, I believe, five languages around the Balkans. Uh, so it's a very, very rare sound in any of Earth's languages. Uh, the sound kla is found in eight North American indigenous languages, and that's it. Klingon has both of those sounds, and they can occur in the same word. So it is, you know, you've, you've got this European sound that's incredibly rare, and you've got this North American sound that's incredibly rare, and in no language in the world that we know of do these two languages co-occur. They co-occur in Klingon. Uh, so it's it's breaking those kind of tendencies or expectations. Yeah, but in a way, you need to start somewhere. There is no way that you can escape that mold Tolkien started with Finnish and um, uh, Welsh or his Elvish languages. Yeah, uh, a lot of conlangers are influenced by natural languages. Uh, I'm working on a, a series of languages for an author out of the United States right now. Um, an Elvish language, an Orc language, and uh, a blend of Elvish with Middle German, actually. 
and he suggested that he wanted the Orc language to be similar in some regards to Eastern European or Slavic languages. He wanted the Elvish languages to have something in common with Celtic languages and, and go from there. But uh, when I do this, I, I don't go, oh, okay, the, the word for fog in Russian is ngwa. Uh, and go, okay, this is going to be my word, and I'm going to change it in very particular ways. I look at the system and I go, what characterizes Slavic languages? And I, I think one of my favorite things about Slavic languages is this palatalization distinction in the sounds. So you could contrast sa versus tsia uh, as, as two contrastive sounds. And, you know, I, I build that kind of flavor into my language. But then if I look and go, um, you know, uh, Russian is a very case-heavy language, so you can have nominative case for the subject of the sentence, accusative case for the object of the sentence, dative case if you're going towards something, instrumental case if you're using something, so on and so forth. Uh, this gives Russian a, a fairly free word order, if I understand it correctly, or at least a lot of poetic licensing. Maybe I don't want to do that with the language I'm inventing. So I, I very purposely steer away from that. Uh, and the same is true when he asked me to create a, a Celtic sounding language, um, you know, verb initial with initial mutations. Um, so uh, bitch the dog, the mailman, word order, and um, the mailman might have some consonant change compared to just mailman on its own or, or something like that. But I, I specifically sought out to go, okay, he wants it Celtic sounding, so that flow should be there, but let's make it distinctly non-Irish in the way I do this. Um, and this is my perspective as someone whose goal is to make naturalistic conlangs. There are other conlangers out there who are experimenting in, in every way, shape, or form um, Sai and Alex Fink, who is a, a Calgarian who lives in the UK, he's a professor of mathematics in the UK, they have collectively invented a gripping language. So the way you position your hands while you're holding hands with each other can actually be a way of speaking. And I, I don't believe they, they base that in any way, shape, or form on things like American Sign Language or, or German Sign Language or anything like that. Um, they're also interested in, in non-linear languages, in a language that might be expressed by, by smells or by tastes. There was another conlanger, and this is before I, I joined the Language Creation Society, who experimented with these, these 3D morphs that would change shape and I believe change color. And that was the system for, for their language. And we see people putting these new spins on it. Um, Deshto, uh, I, Jack Bradley is his name. I, I can only remember his Klingon name for a second. Is a conlanger currently doing a, I believe, Master of Fine Arts degree in the, the United States. And he's looking at subway maps as a modus of communications. And if you indicated what stop you were on or what direction you were going on, I don't understand his language yet. I think he's still working on it, but you could get different interpretations based on those things. So you don't have to start with a natural language, which is one of the really cool things and, and really solidifies conlanging as an art. What is the future of conlanging? What do you think 
Um, my my personal belief is thanks to a few very forward-thinking producers and directors in, in Hollywood and, and that sort of industry, we're going to see more and more conlangs. Um, I know a lot of you know, beginning authors writing novels are reaching out to the Language Creation Society to, to get hire someone to create a language for their novel because they see things like Klingon, like Dothraki, like Sindarin, um, the Black Speech or anything like that from Tolkien. And they feel that this is a valuable thing to add, like I, I like to say, verisimilitude to their world. It, it makes their world real. It makes their characters real. And thanks to some excellent work by people like Mark Oakrand, Trent Pearson, David J. Peterson, Christine Schreier, we're seeing more and more conlangs in popular media. Um, the movie Alpha came out a couple of years ago, and, and that was Cro-Magnum was a conlang that Christine Schreier did. And the entire movie was nothing but that conlang. Brilliant, brilliant work. Uh, Hearing Khal Drogo, uh, Jason Momoa, speak Dothraki really impassionately, um, you wouldn't have that performance if he was trying to do it in English. And the more and more producers and directors that are realizing this, they're bringing conlanging into the mainstream, they're making it popular, they're making it, I, th I think we're just shy of making it an essential component of these fantasy worlds. So I think the future of conlanging is, is going to be this popularization and seeing more and more of it. If you were to ask David Peterson what the future of conlanging is, and I, I feel it's very important to include what I think he would answer, is he would say, you know, conlanging is at least 800 years old. Um, we had uh, St. Hildegard von Bingen, Bingen uh, conlanging in the, in the 1200s, and we're still in our infancy. We're still seeing where we can push this art, and I, I think he would say, like you saw a transition from realism to abstractionist painting to, um, you know, just completely out there forms of artwork that we see in other media, he would suggest we're only starting to see what we can do with constructed languages and we're going to find new ways to push the boundaries of it as an art. Um, I, I don't know what that looks like, because if I did, maybe I would be making it. But I, I think he's absolutely right. We're going to see new, brilliantly creative takes on, on what a language can be. How proficient are you in Klingon? Um, I, I, I have to look everything up still. I'm reasonably good at translating. I, I tend to post my translations to the Learn Klingon Facebook group to make sure I'm doing it right or, or to get uh, corrections if I'm doing it wrong, uh, typically with like embedded clauses and things like that. But I, I like to think I'm, I'm fairly proficient in reading it once it's written down. I can get the, the sounds right and I can translate fairly accurately. What is your favorite expression from Klingon or from any other constructed language? We can finish with some quotes that you like. Uh, I, I put a lot of thought into it, and one of the first things that, that came to mind was um, in season three of Game of Thrones, there's this amazing reveal where Amelia Clark uh, says something like, Valerio Muno Engos Nuisisa, 
you know, Valyrian is my mother tongue. And it was like, oh, yes. And then I started thinking of other things that Amelia Clark and, and uh, Jason Momoa had in, in Dothraki when they were speaking. And, and back in season one, and this might require a little explanation because it's incredibly nerdy. But uh, Khal Drogo, uh, Jason Momoa says, So fosor naka she havasi kazga. Um, the the earth ends at the Black Sea, and uh, Daenerys, uh, played by Amelia Clark, responds with something like "Sofosor um, nako vasechi," and uh, the 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 earth never ends. And I'll get you to focus on that word uh, "sorfosor," earth, because she then goes on to say "sani sorfi veka yome sorfe athiolariani." Uh, I'm probably butchering the Dothraki here, but um, that very similar worth, word, sofosor, earth, becomes sorfo, um, dirt. So she actually says there are many dirts across the sea, uh, the dirts of my birth. And Jason Momoa looks over his shoulder in the scene and he says, fosorfo, raishi, not dirts, lands. And he actually corrects Daenerys's grammar. So she's saying, you know, the, the land where I was born, not the, the dirt where I was born. And it was at that moment, I was like, this is brilliant. We're having a discussion about grammar of a constructed language in a constructed language. And the reason that this is one of my favorite back and forths in a constructed language of all time is because when I was quite young, um, so back in the, the 1980s when Star Trek The Next Generation was airing, they came out with a VCR board game, a VHS board game, and uh, the actor who played uh, Gowron, a Klingon, played uh, Commander Kavak, I think his name was, and he stole the Enterprise, and it was your job as the person playing this board game to get the, the Enterprise back. And one of the first things he does is he says something like Klingon hol dashata'a, uh, which is, we call this paramount hol or uh, paramount language. Terrible, terrible Klingon that doesn't mean anything. Uh, but he tried to say Klingon hol dashata'a, do you speak Klingon? And I remember being this, I don't know what, eight, ten-year-old uh, boy where I was like, this is amazing. Klingon is a language you could speak. And for whatever reason, as I grew up, I, I always remembered the phrase, is this seat taken? And, and later when I could learn Klingon, like this was amazing. And the idea that you could have conversations about your language in this constructed language was phenomenal. And the reason I say that, finally getting to the answer to your question, was... Two phrases out of Klingon are probably my favorite things of all time. The first one is kol light the fire. And this was a phrase that they said in, I think it was the very first episode of season one of Star Trek Discovery. And when I, I heard Tkovma making this speech and he said kol light, light the fire uh, as an imperative command to the, the torchbearer. Without subtitles, I I understood that. And this was amazing to me that I actually understood the Klingon on screen. And I looked over and my girlfriend had this look of recognition. And I'm like, this is amazing. How does, how does she realize what's going on? 
And I, I think it's because one of the original series Star Trek movies, um, one of the first things you hear in Klingon in that movie is George uh, This is Christopher Lloyd's Klingon character uh, saying activate the transport beam. And later in the movie, William Shatner as as Captain Kirk grabs the Klingon communicator and he screams, beam me up, essentially. And the second time they say that, there was no subtitles. And and Mark Oakrand likes to tell the story where he was in the theater for, for this being released. And he's like, this is the moment. This is looking around and Klingon is spoken. And everyone's like, yes. They understood it without the subtitles. He's like, it works. It's a great conlang. And Joel Yichu in the original and Cool Yichu in the new one. It just had that continuity and that recognition factor. And I thought that was so brilliantly done. And shortly after that, they come up with a new chant in Klingon, which is Klingon Mach Tach Jaj. And we've always had sort of the, the Klingon idiom Klingon Mach we are Klingon, but then to add tach jaj, uh, which is the verb to continue tach, and um, it's a, a type nine suffix jaj may or or let it be, um, and I I thought this was just so brilliant that you've expanded an idiom from we are Klingon to Klingon mach tach jaj remain Klingon. And it's not that Tach Judge was a new word. The uh, the title of the Klingon Imperial Anthem is Tach Judge. Whoa! Uh, may, the, may the Empire persist or continue or in, endure. And to repurpose this, this endure thing or may it continue into remain and blend it into an idiom that just became this, this unifying battle cry for the Klingon people. Um, I thought was just the most amazing bit of of both writing and translation work. It's something so simple, something incredibly nerdy, um, but I absolutely love it. Thank you very much for uh, for being a part of this podcast. Oh, thanks so much for for thinking of me and and thinking of of conlanging as a as a topic that you assume people will enjoy. I hope so for sure. That was brilliant, Joy Windsor, and I was enjoying every minute of our conversation. Make sure to tune in to the upcoming Linguistically Aware episodes on CJSW 90.9 FM. If you want to know more about linguists based in Calgary, make sure to visit calgarylinguistics.ca. If you want to know more about Conlang, visit conlang.org or fiatlingua. Dot org. That's all for today. Have a great month and see you soon. 